Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. This passage has traditionally been referred to as the triumphal entry. The Christian church has celebrated this event on what's been known as as Palm Sunday. So we are now beginning uh, Jesus' Passion Week. He is now entering the outskirts of Jerusalem. If you remember, this this huge section in Luke's gospel, which stretched from chapter 9 through this passage before us, has been Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And now we soon begin this next major section in Luke's gospel as he is in this holy city to do what he came to this earth to do. So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word to his people. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who, were sent, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode down the Mount of Olives, As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Imagine that you are anticipating a very exciting event or moment in your future. It could be simple as a vacation or time off work or a wedding, a birth of a child, some very momentous event. 
and this event calms the, the anticipation, uh, anticipation, excitement that had been building, uh, that tension begins to abate, but once you're in this event, things don't go as planned. Your expectations are not met, and rather than being filled with joy and, and peace, you are filled with anger and despondency and frustration. Well, this is similar to what's going on in this passage before us. There's a multitude of disciples in Jesus' midst. And more broadly speaking, there's a crowd of, of Jewish people. And the, the Jews had been waiting centuries for this event to happen. For God's Messiah, God's Christ, God's anointed one to come riding on a donkey into the holy city of Jerusalem to fulfill what Zechariah the prophet had prophesied centuries before. They've been waiting for their king to come into their holy city. 200 years before the Simon Maccabeus, a high priest of the Jews who led a political revolt, he came riding into the city on a donkey, but he was not the Christ. He was not the chosen one of God. We see the excitement, the joy, the praise that's brimming from the disciples as they witness history being fulfilled in their midst. However, things, as uh, we will continue to see in the weeks to come, things do not go as the disciples planned. Jesus does not at all meet their expectation. They were expecting Jesus to come and, and lead a great political revolution to deliver uh, the Jewish people from the Romans to bring them earthly success and power and grandeur. But rather than that, he comes in humility and weakness and even death. Things do not go as, as planned. And so in this narrative, we are confronted with the true nature of Jesus' kingship. There's always a temptation for us to want to impute to Jesus our own expectations of him, our own assumptions of him, rather than letting him define for us who he is. That's what this passage is doing. It's telling us the true nature of Jesus' kingship. More specifically, we see uh, two aspects of his kingship for us. We see that he is a king mounted on a donkey. So we'll consider uh, the significance of that, the symbolism of that. We also see the heart of our king. We see that he is a king who desires the, the salvation of even those who reject him. So at the beginning of this passage, we learn that Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, and Luke tells us that he's going up to Jerusalem. Remember the geography of, uh, of the Near East. Jerusalem is at a higher elevation than those cities that surround her. As he gets to the outskirts of the city, he, he calls upon two of his disciples to go to a, a nearby place and retrieve a colt or a foal of a donkey. And Jesus here tells his disciples not only where to find it, what to expect when they, when, when they find uh, this donkey, and he tells them what to do if they are met with resistance. So G these two disciples go on ahead, they retrieve this donkey, and they bring this donkey back to Jesus. And here we come across a number of indications that tell us that this is a passage about the kingship of Christ. 
royal imagery is, 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 is seeping from, from this narrative. So first, notice that the disciples take off their cloaks and put it upon the, the bare back of this donkey. Kings in the ancient world never, wore, never uh, rode on the bare back of an animal. They would first robe that animal with royal purple robes, very expensive robes, and then the king would ride upon, upon those. So here we see Jesus riding upon a donkey that's been clothed in the, uh, the cloaks of the disciples. So this shows us that Jesus is king, but it also shows us that Jesus is a humble king. These aren't royal purple robes. These are the simple robes, cloaks of poor disciples. He is a humble king. But we're also told that the disciples put Jesus on this donkey. This is reminiscent of 1 Kings chapter 1 when David instructs his soldiers to place Solomon, his son, on a donkey and have him ride to Sahon. Many commentators believe that this is a recognition, this David acknowledging Solomon's right to the throne. It's a vote of confidence that David is placing in Solomon. Another indication that this is a, a royal passage, a passage about Jesus' kingship, is that the rest of the disciples place their cloaks on the path surrounding Jesus. In 2 Kings 9, Jehu, who recently has been anointed king of Israel, has all the people surrounding him take off their cloaks and place them at his feet. So especially in light of the Old Testament, this is royal imagery. Jesus, this is Jesus' coronation. He is the king, the long-awaited king. Now in this account of the triumphal entry, we don't hear about palm branches being laid upon on the, upon the path, Matthew and Mark indicate these details. One of the reasons why Luke may be leaving this detail out is because this practice was related to the Feast of Tabernacles, a Jewish feast, and Luke is primarily writing to a Gentile audience, and so it may have been lost on them. But nevertheless, we see Jesus fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, right? humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 37, you see that as Jesus is drawing near to the city, the disciples recognize what's going on. They likely knew Zechariah 9, verse 9. They knew that this was Jesus' coronation. This is Jesus who is God's Christ, the Messiah, the King, that they've been waiting for for centuries. He's here. And this event is the culmination of, of all the signs, the wonders, the miracles, the healings, the preaching, the teaching that Jesus had been doing the last number of years. This was the icing on top of all of those other evidences that Jesus is King. As a consequence, the disciples praise him. So in verse 38, the disciples say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. In Psalm 118, 
this is a, the part of the Halal Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. These were the Psalms that the Jewish people would, would sing during Passover. Jesus and his disciples likely sang these Psalms the night before his death. In Psalm 118, verse 26, the psalmist says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So notice the interpretive change that the disciples give to this verse. It goes from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Disciples, who again are living before Pentecost, realize that the psalmist is ultimately talking about King Jesus, the Christ. They say blessed is the king, not he, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So again shows us how they, even now, at this moment in history, had a Christocentric view of the Old Testament. A view of wanting to see the Messiah, the Christ, announced ahead of time. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They continue by saying, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you remember back to Luke chapter 2, this is almost verbatim what the angels say at the birth of our Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Now we see the contrast uh, in, in, the, in, in the Pharisees. The Pharisees are quite skeptical, as they have been, of Jesus. And they respond to this event by telling Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Now many commentators believe that one of the reasons why they respond this way is that they didn't want Rome to see this Jewish enthusiasm as a political revolt. They didn't want Rome to slap their wrists, and so they, they wanted to quiet this praise of Jesus. Just 200 years before, Simon Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem and led a political revolt. However, ironically, it's because of the Pharisees and others' rejection of Jesus that God will come through the instrument of the Romans in AD 70 and actually demolish the city. Not because of enthusiasm for Jesus, but because of the rejection of Jesus as a final sanction of that Mosaic covenant. Well, Jesus, in response to this, this critique of the Pharisees, he says, well, if my disciples don't praise and worship me, creation itself will cry out. Creation itself will cry out in worship of me and my kingship. Now this passage, I believe, is primarily about Jesus' kingship over the church, his mediatorial kingship. But here, based on this statement, we also see that Jesus isn't just king of this church. He's king of the universe. He's king over all the kingdoms of this passing age. Creation itself is subjected to this king. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 19, that creation, creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until the revelation of Jesus when he makes all things new. Creation itself is subjected to Jesus' authority and kingship. Why in Psalm 2, God, God says that he has placed his anointed, that is Christ, on Mount Zion, and as a consequence, he looks upon the rulers of this age who seek to plot themselves against him, and he laughs because Jesus is king. 
Well, the disciples are indeed acknowledging Christ's kingship, acknowledging what's being fulfilled in their midst, but they fail to recognize the type of king that Christ is. This passage isn't just a passage about Jesus' kingship. It is, and we are called to respond as the disciples respond by praising and worshiping him. But it is also calling us to acknowledge the type of king that Christ is. He's a king who's riding a donkey. Now, a donkey symbolized peace. Normally, a king wouldn't mount a donkey. Rather, you'd expect a king to, to mount a war horse. A horse recognized, uh, symbolized power and, and might and, and battle and war. But Jesus is riding a donkey. The disciples were expecting Jesus to mount a horse, wanting Jesus to be on a horse. In fact, thinking that this donkey was actually really just a horse. But Jesus is on a donkey, and this is very intentional. It's, it's teaching us a very important part of Jesus' kingship. He comes in his first coming as king, yes, but as a king who is marked with humility and meekness. So much so that Paul says in Philippians 2 that he humbles himself to the point of death, even the cursed death on a cross. A king who lays his life down for his citizenry. Jesus came in his first coming to bring peace to earth, to reconcile God to his people. That was his mission. His mission was not to give the Jews of the first century political freedom. But we do look forward to the time when Jesus will mount the war horse. In Revelation 19, we read that Jesus, uh, John says he looked up and saw him who is faithful and true, riding on a white horse, coming to do battle. These are great symbols of the differences between his first coming, his second coming. His first coming, he's mounted on a donkey. He's come to bring peace to an estranged people. He's clothed in humility and weakness sitting on the simple cloaks of, of poor disciples, but in his second coming, he's going to come in power and might on a white steed to cleanse this earth from all that which is unholy as Joshua cleansed the holy land of Canaan. And the disciples didn't, didn't recognize this distinction. As we saw a few passages ago, they thought that the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom, was going to come immediately. But Jesus is a king mounted on a donkey. He's a king who's come to bring peace. So this, this symbolism of, of him riding a donkey teaches us a number of things. It teaches us that, that we have to be careful that we don't impute to Christ our own expectations. Just as, just as the disciples uh, were wanting Jesus to be made after their own image, it's very easy for us to fall into that same trap. You have the Jesus of health, wealth, and prosperity. It's as if when we follow Jesus, place our faith in him, he will give us health, he'll give us wealth, he'll give us an easy life here on earth, but that's not what Jesus promised. Not then, not now. You have the political Jesus. Disciples were wanting a political Jesus. Jesus is not promised that he's going to bring a Christian utopia in this age. Now, it's not wrong to pursue health. It's not wrong to pursue wealth. It's not wrong to engage in culture. But we have to be very careful about what Christ has promised us and what he has not promised us. 
This is a Christ on a donkey. And this further shows us that our salvation, our entire salvation is completely wrapped up in this aspect of his kingship. The fact that Jesus came to bring peace, he came in humility and meekness and went to such great lengths as to die on a cross assures us that our sins are forgiven. Assures us that that Christ took upon himself the wrath and curse that you and I have earned due to our sin. It assures us that that Christ was forsaken by his father so that no child of God will ever be forsaken. It assures us that all of your sins, not just your past sins, not just your present sins, but even your future sins, are completely washed, put away from the memory of our omniscient God. So that God the Father can truly speak to you that as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed, utterly removed your transgressions from you. It's only because Christ came on a donkey. He came to bring peace. He came to lay his life down for his enemies. And the only way that we deal with the problem of our sin is through submitting to him, placing our faith in him. He doesn't do 90% of the work. He does the entire entire work. Christ has completely cleansed those of you who are in him by faith, completely cleansed you from all of your sins and transgressions. This also assures us, this, this imagery of Jesus on a donkey assures us that, or not assures us, but, but instructs us on the life of gratitude that we are called to. His humility, yes, accomplished our salvation, but it also serves as an example, a template for the Christian's ethic in this age. Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mindset of humility. First Peter uh, says that Christ Jesus suffered for us, leaving you an example that you might walk in his steps. Jesus is example of humility, of self-sacrifice, of turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, is the type of love that we are called to display towards one another. The type of enduring love that we are called to display to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter says that elders are called to be uh, not domineering, but examples. Examples of what? Well, examples of the chief shepherd. The type of ethic, ethic that we all are called to embrace as we turn the other cheek, as we go the extra mile, as we, uh, in love, cover a multitude of sins or overlook a multitude of sins. So Jesus, mounting a donkey, assures us that our salvation is completely wrapped up in Christ. And it also serves as an example, example of the kind of ethic that we are called to live in this age. And just as a non-Jew who would have been, uh, if, if they would have been present at this scene, they would have been looking at this and scratching their heads. What's so great about a king mounted on a simple donkey? Well, so too, the world can look upon the church and see the means, the instruments that God uses to work faith in his people is foolish. Preaching, teaching, reading, sacraments, fellowship, faithful shepherding of leaders. This seems foolish to the watching world, but yet this is the method that Christ our King uses in this age. So Jesus is a king, a king who comes on a donkey. 
But we also see that, that this king desires the salvation even of those who reject him. So after this, this triumphal em- entry in verses 41 through 44, we see Jesus approaching the city of Jerusalem. And as he lays his eyes upon this holy city, we read that he weeps. Now this word that Luke uses is not a, a tearing of the eyes. This is an uncontrollably, uh, uncontrollable sob, sobbing. Jesus weeping, weeping over this city who he knows will reject him. A city who he knows will turn from him. A city who he knows in just a few short decades will be utterly decimated by the Romans as God judges them as the final sanction of that Mosaic covenant in a way that's similar to to God using the Babylonians to judge the people of Israel by bringing them out of their promised land. And he weeps. He weeps. Weeps over those who he knows his omniscience will turn and reject him. So in verse 42, he cries out, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. The things that make for peace are referring to faith and repentance. Or that even you, inhabitants of Jerusalem, would would have turned to me with faith and repentance. Just as God, through the mouth of Ezekiel, said, I do not desire the death of the wicked, but that they, they would turn to me and live. We already saw Jesus' lament for Jerusalem in Luke chapter 13 when he compared himself to a hen wanting to, to gather, gather these individuals under him, but they would not have him. So here again we come across this distinction, this distinction between what God desires and what God wills. Throughout scripture we learn that God does not always will everything that he desires. So we can say that God truly desires the salvation of all people, even though we know in the mystery of his will, he does not will the salvation of all people. One of the great things of, of Reformed theology is the clarity by which it, it, it presents the gospel. And one very important aspect of this gospel is that this gospel can be genuinely and sincerely offered to every single person we come into contact with. That's why Christ, he He commissions his disciples and says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He doesn't tell them, make sure that you only give the gospel to the elect. No, he says, everyone with whom you come into contact with should be treated as the elect of God. Genuinely, sincerely offer the gospel to everyone. To everyone across the nations. The list of the elect, the reprobate, that belongs to the secret will of God. A will that we are not privy to. A will that we are not to pry into. We are called to genuinely and sincerely, as the church, offer this announcement of the good news of Jesus' earthly ministry to everyone we come into contact with. Jesus weeps over those who he knows will reject him. Just as we are called to display the love of Christ, just as we are called to imitate the forgiveness that's been granted to us in God's forgiveness of us in Christ, so too we are called to imitate the heart of Christ for for the lost. The heart of Christ which weeps over the lost. We too are called to be burdened for those who are without this saving message of the gospel. 
So congregation, Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage, we again are confronted with the kingship of Christ. Not our conception of Christ's kingship, but Christ's revelation of himself. He's a king who's mounted on a donkey. He's a king who's come to bring peace to this world. He's a peace uh, king who desires the salvation of, of, of all. And we look forward with expectation that day when he will come, mounted not on a donkey, but on a war horse. And we, as his people, are called to submit to him with faith and repentance.